I was born in, in Russia. I was born in technically in USSR, as I like to say lately. And I moved to the United States, to California in 1992. So I was 11 years old. So I was already living in what is called Silicon Valley, although that term is somewhat nebulous. But I lived in San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Alex, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Lovely to be here. You are the co-founder and CEO at Sunflower Labs, a remote autonomous security solution for all types of properties. And before we talk about your company, I actually want to start with your personal background. You studied astronomy and sociology. That's quite an uncommon combination. How did that happen? Hmm. Um, by accident, I guess. Um, my general philosophy is that what you study doesn't matter. So I think a lot of people take that much more seriously, especially in the undergraduate. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to study what I found interesting. So I actually didn't really declare a major. I just took um, sociology classes, astronomy classes, meteorology classes. Um, and after a little while, I realized that I was closer to, essentially I was, I was close to getting both degrees. Um, and if I was to focus, I can get both degrees. Mm -hmm. Technically, so I do have both degrees and both bachelor degrees, but then I also completed the astrophysics honors program. So I finished that. So for the most part, I was actually angling to be like focusing on astrophysics. Like I was gonna, I, I did apply for the masters. I did, a, I actually got accepted. So um, I was gonna be an astrophysicist, but then I went to Silicon Valley and got a job and never thought about it again. And things changed from there onwards. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanna focus on the claim that you just made before. I find that very interesting that the studies don't matter as much as many people think. What, why is that? What, what is then really the relevant aspect from your perspective? I think the main point of college and really of any education is to teach you how to learn. So what you are learning isn't as relevant because you basically are learning how to learn because honestly, the way I've seen people's careers develop is that whatever they studied essentially was already out of date by the time that they were, uh, especially in startups, right? Especially in sort of high tech, right? Yeah. You can't take computer science classes and then expect to get a job in four years and have any of that be relevant, right? Yeah. But the general understanding of, of learning how to learn a language, how to program it, even if you're learning, you know, uh, Pascal or some, some sort of forgotten language, that's still relevant, right? So yeah. if you've, if you were good at learning, right, it'll be easier for you to learn new things as you go on. And I think in particular, undergraduate studies, people sort of over-index their importance because undergraduate studies, you're a little bit too young to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life, I think. Mm -hmm. So you should just study stuff that you find interesting and then sort of boil it down, eventually get to something that you will you know, want to pursue as a career, but give yourself a chance to explore. In that regard, would you say that it's even a good idea to pursue studies at all if you want to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, an entrepreneur is somebody who is constantly learning, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's no way you know, you will learn everything you need in school and then go start a company. You, yeah, sure. And at every stage of the company, you're learning different things, right? So fundamentally, the only important thing is that you are a quick learner, right? That you know how to find the information, you know how to study, you know how to absorb it. And then I think that would be the most fundamental skill. Yeah, I like that. And then you mentioned you went to Silicon Valley and things changed. So how did that interest and also sort of pivot into the business world happen then from your study background? What, what spoke and, and caught your attention there? So I... I was born in, in Russia. I was born in technically in USSR, as I like to say lately. Um, and I moved to the United States, to California in 1992. So I was 11 years old. So I was already living in what is, what is called Silicon Valley, although that term is somewhat nebulous. But I lived in San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, I was working in some high-tech companies early on. As a matter of fact, I was the youngest employee at Silicon Graphics. I was 17 years old, and I had a full-time job at Silicon Graphics in 1997. Um, and then I decided to go off to college to do something else. But essentially, I started a company 
you know, my second year in college with my my roommate. His name is Chris, who's a co-founder of this company now as well. So we actually had a company together in, oh boy, 1999, wow, I think, man. something like that. That was our first. And we did, you know, web development, hosting, um, you know, we did email blasts for people, you know, what whatever kids did in those days yeah. to, to make money. Um, and so that already, like, I already felt that this is going to be my path. My father is also an entrepreneur. He's had n- numerous companies start his life. So I saw that path uh, as well. And then when I had a chance to, uh, when I graduated college, when I had a chance, I actually had two job offers. One was in Boston and one was in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, but because of a girl that later became my wife, uh, I ended up going to California and I ended up taking the job in California and then um, uh, essentially then building my career there. Wow. That's a fascinating story. <laughs> I mean, you put in a short, short story, but that's like a lot of stuff happened there. You then actually also spent nine years at Evernote, right? We already had Phil on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, from your time there, I mean, it's a fantastic project. Uh, Phil talked deeply about it. What did you take away? How did that, these nine years at Evernote shape and change you? In more ways than I can describe. Um, so... Evernote to me was really the full experience of sort of going through a conception of a product, you know, early development, building out a team, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, early financing, um, launching a product, scaling a product, building out the company, building out partnerships. You know, I I was officially employee number three at Evernote. Wow. Um, and when I left, I think there was about 400, maybe 450 people and just the work which I did, my, the work that my team and I did was responsible for something like uh, pre-installing Evernote on 250 million devices around the world. So it was just, you know, it, it literally went from like zero to, you know, we, we launched with the App Store and all of the things that happened mm-hmm. to then being, you know, this, this very massive, uh, very successful product. Um, I believe it was actually 10 years I spent there. So okay. uh, I left in the end of 2015 and I started in 2005. Okay, well, yeah. even longer, yeah. Yeah, so my decade of my life. And you didn't have enough of the startup world because then in 2016, you founded Sunflower Labs. You already mentioned one of your co-founders that you met during college. How do you met the third co-founder? Yeah, so technically it's three of us who really built the company. Mm -hmm. So uh, Chris and I were friends from college days and we stayed close uh, throughout those times and we wanted to do something together again. We, We talked about it on and off. And when we decided what to do and we decided to do something in the drone space, um, you know, we quickly realized we didn't actually know anything about drones. So, uh, so we needed somebody who did. So uh, <laughs> through a mutual connection, we were introduced to Nick. Um, and uh, Nick joined the company essentially before we, we had an office, before we kind of had anything. I think he was, you know, working with us uh, on a part-time basis initially. But, you know, we basically said, look, you know, we, we think we can raise money for this. We think this is a good idea. We can do a bunch of this stuff, but we really need somebody who is an expert in drones. He was uh, just finishing ETH. Uh, he was an expert in drones. He worked in, the, in a PX4 lab. Um, and uh, he agreed to join us. And uh, the three of us effectively built the product and the company that we have today. Was it always the goal at Evernote for you and then also like Chris to say, hey, we want to start another company together? No, it wasn't necessarily always the goal. Chris and I uh, were friends, you know, for 20 some years. And uh, he was also at other startups because he's an aerospace engineer and he was more an aerospace company. I was more of a kind of a high tech, you know, mobile sort of guy. And I was on those types of uh, companies in Silicon Valley. He was looking to do something new around that time. I was looking to do something new. We, uh, I, I come to Switzerland quite a bit. My wife is Swiss, so I, he is Swiss as well. So I saw him here. We said, hey, we really should think about doing something together. And so, yeah, we, you know, it, it, it worked out that way. But, you know, that wasn't necessarily the goal in itself. So it was more also the timing that aligned, that you were both looking for something new and the timing was right to get started together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think both of us were, we both ended up in bigger companies that we wanted to be in, and we <laughs> wanted to be in a small company again. Uh, then build it yourself. That's the way to go. Yeah. Talk a bit about the early days, you know, how it actually started with Sunflower Labs, the idea around it, and also the focus on, on drones. Were you just dissatisfied with the existing security solutions out there, or how do you, did you come up with the idea? We say that that's maybe like a little bit more of a like a PR or marketing spin on it. Right. Um, 
that's not entirely how it happened. I guess I might as well sort of tell tell the story how it actually was. Sure. So um, I I wanted to do something new. Uh, Chris wanted to do something new. Um, we were uh, we sort of threw ideas around. Essentially, we end up having about five ideas of things that we could do. Mm-hmm. And they range from something quite trivial, actually, it was like a game, like kind of a simple game, to sort of a B2B software that um, uh, might still come into existence through another friend of ours who, who might pursue this project. Um, there's one other project. And then the fourth in, in complexity was the idea of having a drone autonomously patrol your property. And the reason for that was because I lived in this house in California and I had a forest behind my house mm-hmm. and there was constantly noises inside the forest. You know, it, some of it is just animals. Some of it are teenagers partying. There's a bunch of other weird stuff that happened. And um, it was just kind of unsettling. And there is nothing you can sort of do. Like, you're not going to go out there in the middle of the night into the forest, like with what, with a shotgun or something? Like, yeah, I, right. I mean, this, it's not me. I, I, w- I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and uh, and my wife was quite worried about it. And she would wake up and she would say, you know, hey, what was that noise? And, you know, like you peek out the window, you don't see anything. Mm-hmm. And so I was at that time, I had a couple of uh, like commercial drones. And I thought, oh, you know, it would be kind of cool if I just like flew out and took a look. And I literally just mentioned this kind of off the cuff to Chris, thinking that like, oh, yeah, it would have been kind of cool uh but he took it much more seriously um and he was thinking about it more than i did i meanwhile moved on to the fifth idea which is something we hopefully will eventually get back to but we had this whole other idea of space garbage collection so i wanted to be space garbage man uh most i just want to say i'm a garbage man uh and you know then explain to people so that was the premise of the idea but we had an actual some concept about how we would do space garbage collection but we thought okay that would be too difficult so the fourth most difficult idea was this one uh chris meanwhile started prototyping it he had kind of an early uh we have we had these sensors we had this kind of early drone this is when we realized we didn't know much about drones we were building these racing drones together <laughs> that's this is when we met nick that nick saved us um and i basically said look um you know i like this idea let's see if we can raise money for it um we went to phil so phil was our general catalyst at the time Mm -hmm. i talked to phil about the five ideas actually i think he liked one of the other ones better but i said no i we we want to go with this um we pitched a few other folks as well but then we pitched phil and we pitched a general catalyst and um essentially they agreed to to fund the initial kind of pre-seed round and then once we had that, we were like, oh, well, I guess we're doing it. So then we, we started started working on it, you know, for real. That's such a great story because I think it shows the personal connection, right? It, it is a personal problem that you faced yourself to a certain extent, but then also sort of more, oh, this might be an idea and not taken seriously at the beginning and then a whole business idea and even a business emerged out of that, I think. That's beautiful. Yeah, when we talked about it, we realized that there's quite a few different markets for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually, we we initially wanted to focus purely on residential. And we were, most of our time, we built a system for residential applications. But um, we, uh, pandemic and some of the other uh, reasons, you know, we essentially realized that, look, there's actually a much more, uh, much larger market, much more viable market in sort of commercial and industrial aspects of it. And because we built a system with a residential market in mind, we're already building it to be more compact, more portable, Mm -hmm. you know, more flexible. We sort of built it with a kind of a consumer mindset. And that ended up helping us a lot because our system is arguably sort of the simplest, the most elegant, yet, you know, I think is arguably just as powerful as anything else in the market. Yeah, it looks stunning. I recommend everyone to check out your website. It yes. looks super nice. Please, please do, yeah. So tell us also a bit how it actually works. So what is the problem that you solve for these uh, larger clients, the yeah, the commercial properties? Yeah, it's very simple. Um, it's a flying security camera. You know, like you, you want to see what's going on in different places. You have, broadly speaking, two options. You can walk out and go look at it, or you can put a stationary camera and look at it. So putting stationary cameras is uh, expensive. It gets expensive quickly. They have to be mounted. They have to be wired. They have to be integrated with some sort of a, a video management system. You know, typically that is a big project, you know, and that could run into hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, in a mm-hmm. deployment. Or if you are patrolling it by yourself, right, then you have to hire security guards. It has to be 24 hours. You know, they have to walk out. They have to know that something has happened. Right. And then, you know, so we sort of can solve both of those problems at once. Um, we can give you a point of view of anywhere on your property, 
within seconds, quite literally within seconds. So we can cover a four acre property and that is uh, roughly speaking 200 meters by 200 meters in under 30 seconds. So we can be anywhere on that property in under 30 seconds. Wow. We can cover a 10 acre property. And so that's 600 meters by 600 meters roughly mm -hmm. in under 90 seconds. So that is orders of magnitude faster than a human would do it. And then if you were really, if you were to think like take, um, I don't know, like a, take a large yard uh, construction site or something, how many cameras do you actually need to cover it comprehensively? You're easily in dozens, very, very mm -hmm. quickly. So then, you know, with our system, you just have the one, and it can go to each one of those points. It can capture video. It can capture snapshots. It can analyze them for people, for vehicles, for animals. It can follow them around. It can give you, it can do a patrol. It can be on demand. There's all this flexibility when you can just fly there, right? And of course, in the end, comes back, lands, recharges, ready to go again. So we think it's actually a very compelling solution for a very, very real problem. Yeah, it sounds like an even better solution at a fraction of the price of a traditional setup. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we estimate that for kind of a commercial site, our cost of our system is less than 20% of what traditional security wow. system providing the same job would be. Yeah. And how difficult is it to win clients to, you know, make a case and sort of convince them that, hey, this not only saves you money, but it's also the better solution for your setup? There's two types of clients, I would say. Mm -hmm. There are people who instantly get it and you don't need to sell them. They want it immediately. Yeah. And that's a question of um, tactically, how do you deploy it? Right. You know, right now we're working on a fair amount of regulations that we need to adhere to and so forth. So there's, mm -hmm. there's work to sort of deploy it. And then there is a slightly different approach where you are talking to security providers and these security providers, they have a need to reduce their uh, staff, reduce their costs, excuse me. And, um, and then that's a little bit of a longer, because you really have to show the effectiveness of the system, you know, as, a, as, a, as, they, would, as they would deploy it and reduce sort of the staff that they have. So we see quite a bit of both. One is just a longer route than the other one. But I think people, for the most part, the value proposition is clear, right? So either somebody is like, oh, we want it. We understand ex like, this is exactly the kind of site uh, that would be perfect for us. We need to have this here then it's just sort of working out the details or you're really kind of working more through a business case, doing um, proof of concept installations, you right. know, putting together reports and so forth. So we do a little bit of both. Um, I wouldn't say it's easy, but uh, it is. it certainly is doable and has been going quite well. Which of these customers do you focus on? Do you go directly to the property owners or do you go to the security companies who would be mandated by the property owners to take care of the security aspect? So we're honestly only been dealing with inbound interest. Wow, okay. So we haven't like knocked on doors or we haven't really done any type of outbound outreach very much. Mm -hmm. We mostly have been just very lucky, I guess, um, that we've been uh, we've been sort of well known already in the space. We're easily Googleable. Uh, so if you drone, if you start drone, if you search for like drone security, I think we come up right away. Um, we've had really good press. People were quite excited about us. So, so that helped drive it. Mm -hmm. So we are mostly dealing with inbound interest. And the question is just being able to having the throughput to be able to deal with it. So we've had to sort of narrow down to what we think would be the most suitable types of applications of our system and just go through them one by one. What are the top two or three application? Storage is a very big one. Any type of storage. So we do uh, self-storage, sort of just large outdoor storage. Mm -hmm. We have a partnership with uh, Swiss Federal Railways with SBB, um, you know, where we have done an installation to protect sort of a large train repair facility. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that's a really great use case, right? That's this massive site, right? That yeah. you can be able to patrol quite easily instead of having to install, in our case, probably hundreds of cameras, right? Mm -hmm. We work with the largest security company in the US called ADT. And so we're working on a number of projects. Um, can't get into a lot of details yet, but we'll certainly yeah. make some noise about it when we can, but um, we had a system installed at an airport, but not like at an air, it's a big airport, it's an international airport, but we were not operating like what's called a movement area. So not mm -hmm. where planes land, but more on maintenance facilities and um, facilities sort of on the outskirts of the airport, which are maybe harder for security to get to. Mm -hmm. And we had sort of full FAA authorization to do that. Wow. Um, we have a, a, number, a number of other partnerships, but basically think large 
outdoor properties. And by the way, we have done some high-end residential installations. So really big like mansions, essentially, you know, where a system flies around. So things like that. These are fascinating and very interesting use cases. It's, uh, it's been, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and we try to illustrate as many of them as we can on our website when we can. We can't always talk about what we do because we provide security and people are quite sensitive about it. Yeah. But uh, when we can, we put out a case study on our website uh, where we show how our system is used in a particular mm -hmm. site. And I also wonder, how does your business model work? Do you have like an installation fee or do you work with a recurring fee? It's also quite simple. You know, you give us money, we give you drone. Um, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the gist of it. Um, you can give us money in number of ways. You can give it to us as a subscription. So we actually, most of our customers lease the system. Mm -hmm. That allows us also to maintain, upgrade it, replace it. So, you know, we don't expect a drone that lives outdoors to live forever. So you want to essentially replace it on a fairly regular basis. Mm -hmm. We also don't want customers to have old drones laying around, right? Somebody sure. had it for many years that maybe it's not as safe anymore. So we think a lease model allows us essentially, it's a, it's a robot as a service, right? You need a robot to fly around your property. You got it. Um, our pricing is quite simple. It's, it starts at about $3,000 a month. Um, so you have $3,000 a month, you get a drone, and then we make sure it is always working. We do have other alternative ways. We've uh, we've sold some systems with two or three years of service included. Mm -hmm. Money-wise, it ends up being the same thing. But in some cases, some customers prefer to, to account for, for the mm -hmm. finances differently. And, you know, often entrepreneurs on the podcast, they sell us do either hardware or software, but never both at the same time. You sort of do both at the same time. You combine hardware and software. Is that a very big challenge from a complexity level to make it work? I can't see how you can possibly do hardware and not do software anymore. Yeah, right. As a matter of fact, I think you're probably shooting yourself in the foot, right? Um, there's a phrase, uh, I think it's by Alan Keyes, I might be wrong, that said that people who are serious about software build their own hardware. And like that phrase has never been more true than now, right? Yeah. If you want to provide a certain experience, that experience is defined by software, right? Whether it's the app or the backend or the cloud or anything, right? Mm -hmm. But then if you want that software executed with perfection, exactly how it needs to be and have the control over it, then you have to build your own hardware because anytime you're doing it on somebody else's hardware, you are restricted, right? You don't quite have the full control. So, I mean, unless it's completely open source or something like that. So we build everything. We, we've done design, industrial design, graphic design of our system, you know, everything that we need. We've done hardware design, we've done electronics, we've done most of the firmware. Yes, some of the wow. firmware we use, for example, PX4, which is developed here in Switzerland. So that's an open source project, but we contribute back to it. You know, we, so there's lots of stuff that we, you stand on the shoulders of giants, right, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, sort of software development. And then we build our front end apps as well. So, so the, the philosophy is that you know, you control the end-to-end -end experience for the customer, right? If somebody says, I want the drone to look over here, there are many, many steps that happen and you are responsible for every one of those steps. And if you say, oh, we're not going to build our own drone, we're just going to take somebody else's. And then that drone, you don't know what it does or it misbehaves and you don't quite have the full control over it. You're, yeah. you're at the mercy of that supplier, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I can see companies who only build software. Uh, they don't need to build any hardware and there's mm -hmm. lots of great businesses there. But I feel like if you build hardware you inevitably have to build your own software, at least uh, the critical the critical components of it. Right. But I can imagine combining both worlds, right? Hardware and software, that's an immense complexity to work with and to actually make it work in the end. I mean, it's work. It's work is work. You have to do yeah. the work to, you know, <laughs> write up the stuff. But um, it's maybe less mysterious too, mm -hmm. um, because you could spend a lot of time debugging somebody else's hardware. You wrote great software, but it doesn't work. And you don't know why. Yeah, sure. Right. So if you have the full stack control, yeah. it is better. I think most folks at my at the company uh, at Sunflower Labs, they sort of span both worlds. You know, even even people who are largely hardware oriented. I mean, they still understand what the firmware is going to do, and, and people who are purely software still understand that it comes down, and you need to get a signal at a certain frequency from the the hardware. So I think everybody has an appreciation of both sides of the of of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also essential, right? I think like the appreciation of the full stack of what you're doing lets you ultimately make better decisions. Right. 
In that regard, I also wonder, you briefly mentioned your wife is Swiss, one of your co-founders is Swiss, but Switzerland is also known as a sort of a drone hub. There are many drone-related startups here. What role does Switzerland play for your business? Well, that's why we started the company in Switzerland, honestly. Um, so, yes, my co-founder is Swiss. Both my co-founders uh, co are Swiss. My wife is Swiss. Uh, they all wanted to be in Switzerland. Uh, I wanted to start a company. Uh, we, met, um, we met a whole bunch of different folks here in the drone space. Um, we, we were I'm really close friends with a bunch of them, you know, the, the founders of Wingtra, um, uh, the, the founder of Arterian, uh, Lawrence, was actually one of the first people that we met and introduced us to founders of um, uh, Photokite, you know, also a drone company company here um uh you know we we met them in in 2016 when we first started in the company really just to gauge whether like yeah everybody talks about switzerland and the drones but is it true mm -hmm. and it is um there are at my last count there are like 50 drone companies in switzerland maybe there's even more wow. uh and uh there's a lot of talent that's coming out from uh, eth epfl university of zurich with a lot of experience in robotics and control theory and and so it felt to us that for starting a company and building out the initial team, we had a, a larger pool to tap into. And actually, mm -hmm. um, the other, I, what I felt was a positive thing is that there was more, um, there was there were fewer startups here than say in Silicon Valley. So the kind of people who want to be in startups, you were, you were easier, it was easier for you to be exposed to them, right? Yeah. So, uh, whereas in Silicon Valley, everybody's in a startup, it's not really a thing, right? So, uh, so when we decided to do it, we explicitly decided that we were going to start it here. We will obviously have a presence in US. We are an American company. We, we raised money in US. We have uh, now, there's technically just three American employees and, uh, and most of our sales and most of our activities in US. But Switzerland has been our main office and the biggest office. So we have 27 people here and uh, it has been what we generally consider our R&D office. So all of our kind of technology and innovation takes place here. Well, I think that's a, a really interesting setup to better understand. So R&D in Switzerland, probably sales and marketing more US focused. Production wise, do you also have like a third office or pillar in the world? We are going to do production in Switzerland. Wow. So yeah, we decided to pick the most expensive place uh, to build your things. Uh, but <laughs> there is a reason for that. Um, so I can't get into too much details of it just yet, but we'll we'll make this public soon. But um, we we were exploring where to do production. You know, everybody kind of defaults to to China. Mm -hmm. uh, it would actually be very difficult for us to do um, production of our system in China. We decided, okay, let's look into a few other places. We looked into US, Eastern Europe, and so forth. We accidentally found a place um, that had a facility in Switzerland, which happened to be very well suited for us, that we're going to start the manufacturing there. But the real reason for that is so that the engineers can drive over there. Because if you do production somewhere else, especially in the early days, it's so... It's so hands-on. You have to be so close to it. Otherwise, you know, imagine it's on the other side of the world. It's a 24-hour cycle to get a question answered. Everything is slow. So we thought, you know what? The engineers are here. There's a, a great facility that we found here. Yes, it's more expensive. <laughs> but uh, our system is expensive and it needs to be... Uh, high quality and it needs to be something that you know like we we do want the made in switzerland sort of like stamp on it right yeah. i think that does that does add uh, a significant value to it over time as we production grows we can scale it out into different parts of the world but for now yeah we are we are going to manufacture here fantastic yeah i i think speed outweighs the the cost by far in in that setup especially in the early days as you just mentioned I was convinced at the following uh, sort of metric is that like the cost of a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. Like a cost of a mistake and the ability to recover from a mistake, right? So um, if you let things go, you haven't been at the facility for a long time, and then there's been a mistake that's been kind of propagating for a couple of months, right? The cost of that mistake to you could be immeasurable at that point, right? Whereas I think having a local facility and saying, oh, we have an issue with electronics. Okay, send electronics guys to take a look. We have an issue with mechanical assembly. We have an issue with, I don't know, the firmware isn't doing something right. Like having, being able to be quick to respond to address an issue and not let them sort of fester and go deeper into production is what I think is ultimately the reason. The, the more expensive part of building in Switzerland is the labor 
But the labor is a fraction of the cost of our system because really the cost of our system are largely the parts, the electronics, the microprocessors, and all mm -hmm. of the um, uh, computers and everything that go into it. So we thought, okay, well, it actually greatly outweighs that formula. Yeah. Great setup. You mentioned the advantages of Switzerland, right? The good talent pool, the universities, the local drone community and other startups. I wonder, you've lived in Silicon Valley for a long time. You've done business there. What are some of the drawbacks or points where Switzerland can do better and maybe learn from the US in that regard? Okay, I have to be, I have to be careful here. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bureaucracy is probably one of the bigger drawbacks. Like I feel that anything that we have to do here that's sort of kind of on the legal front um it's just there's just a lot more paperwork and there's a lot more complexity to it um i honestly okay fine i mean if i'm gonna say anything useful um i feel that um switzerland isn't made for startups it's made for large organizations, large companies, banks, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, things like that. The regulatory environment is, is complex and strict in order to allow for these complex products to be produced and distributed. And it makes sense for them. But I think uh, some of that spills over into starting a company. And like as somebody starting a startup, it should not be as difficult as it is. Um, you know, to give you an idea, like when I started this company, we started in US, I did it one night at 11 p.m. I decided, we decided to do a company and I went and I filled out um, like a form basically like, you know, and I had the next morning, I essentially had everything I needed. You know, I had the company registration that was $200. I had like all the basic stuff. Then I could open the bank account. And then, you know, and then we did this sort of in parallel with a fundraising just to to pull together. Right. It, it took no effort whatsoever. It's easy to open the company. It's easy to shut it down. You know, so I think that's uh, that's sort of the beauty of sort of the Delaware Delaware C Corp. Mm -hmm. um, and we then decided to do the, the company in Switzerland. And so we were like, okay, well, what is that going to take? Several lawyers later and like 9,000 Swiss francs later was like, oh, it needs to be set up as a wholly owned subsidiary that's owned by this entity that is then submitted here that's registered in the canton of Zurich. But maybe we should do it in Zug for some reason. Maybe we should do it like it got. And then you needed to have all of these like in, internal contracts and all this employee stuff. And OK, granted, fine, it's an international thing. But that like that experience wasn't unique to me. Like I thought like. That's because I'm trying to do something crazy and start a company in the U.S. with a Swiss entity. But that's not crazy, right? That's like, that is a simple thing that actually a lot of Swiss companies choose to do, especially if they want to raise money in the U.S., right? So sure. raising money in the U.S. Is, is where most companies will ultimately raise money. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I, and I was talking to, to a lawyer here and I said, why is this this hard? Like, what is the point? And he's like, yeah, this is not like, the legal system isn't made for this. Like the legal system is made for large law firms, you know, working slowly for stuff. So I found that challenging. Getting audited, like we were 10 people and we had to go through an audit. We're like, wait, what? Like, we don't make any money. Like, what are, what are, what are, what are you auditing here? But again, like six, 7,000 francs and two months of like paperwork. And it's like, why? What are we doing here? Yeah. Um, hiring and firing people, way more complicated than it should be. I understand, again, if you're a big organization, you have rules and you want to mm -hmm. retain people and give them job security. But that's not quite the case for a startup that can just vaporize, right? You might run sure. out of money and like, you know, the 30, this 90 day notice or longer. And this is like, that's not really conducive to sort of that environment, right? Yeah. So that, those are my, those are my major sort of, you know, issues which I had. Yeah, I think it's it's great to get that outside perspective because here in Switzerland, sometimes you tend to get a bit too comfortable and think it's a great place, everything is working, but it's good to see where we have some homework to do. So thank you for sharing that. Everything is working once you set it up, you know, yeah, but, but it takes time. It yeah. takes time. Um, yeah. And I mean, you have other tasks and challenges at hand that actually create business value. So you don't want to waste your money and energy and time on these bureaucratic things. Like setting up stock option plans for people, um, you know, getting tax advice on like, what does it mean? It's just stock right. option plan. Is it taxable? Is it not? Like we literally would get conflicting advice from people and, you know, some people. And so it just felt like, look, all of this stuff should be trivial. Yes. Like if Switzerland is interested in Zurich, maybe specifically is like interested in having more startups. Like, and, and I think I've said this uh, to the to folks that from the canton of Zurich, actually, personally, it's mm -hmm. like, 
just make it like absolutely trivially easy. Like yeah. fill out this form, couple days, you know, 300 Swiss francs, whatever, done. Like just right. like, don't make people who are starting a company who are likely really good engineers, right? Have a really cool idea. Don't make them have to figure that stuff out. That's not what they should be spending their time on. Absolutely. And Zurich is an example. It's going the exact opposite way these days. So when I talked to tax advisors last week, they basically said Zurich is one of the most strict cantons when it comes to employee stock option taxes. So whatever they can, they will probably do it in a negative way for you while other cantons are more startup friendly in that regard. Yeah, like we were told like, oh, you shouldn't start it in Zurich, you should do it in Zug or uh, Schaffhausen or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait, wh why would I do it there? Like we're already <laughs> here, right? And it's like, oh, it's like half a percent better in taxes. I was like, but we don't make any money. Like, you know, so like, right. what is this? Like, what are we optimizing for, right? It's like, yeah. it's silly to, to, but anyway, yeah, like make it, absolutely trivial and then there'll be more companies coming out of college and starting and ultimately being more successful yeah i would love to see that happen <laughs> i also want to talk about the founders network uh, that sort of emerged from evernote phil libin and also two other evernote uh, folks are actually on your board of advisors or have even invested in your company so in that regard how important was this founders network of people you've worked with together in the past? I mean, even Chris, your co-founder was sort of part of, of that. What, what importance does that network play to then build another successful company after that? I mean, it's fundamental, right? Your network is essentially, it's an asset, mm -hmm. right? So why was I able to to raise money earlier. Well, it's because Phil and some of the other folks that invested early on, they knew me from before, right? They trusted me. They listened to the idea. They thought it was crazy, but yeah, what the hell? Let's let them try it, you know, like roll the dice with it. Yeah. Um, you know, why were we able to, like, so we have uh, our legal advisor, Chris Dahl is on, the, um, is on our advisory board and, um, and I've worked with him in Evernote from day one we've done something like 400 contracts together, right? Wow. All different kinds. And so I knew like, look, if I'm gonna start a company and I need some legal advice, this is like absolutely the one person I want to be able to, to mm -hmm. be close with. Uh, another person on my advisory board, his name is Hitoshi Hakamura. He was the, the chairman of Evernote Japan. So when we started an office in Japan, um, you know, he was the person that essentially made that possible. And I wanted to do more business in Japan. And we do do business in Japan. We have our systems deployed in Japan right now. And I thought, you know what, like there's a one, if you have like one person in the world that I know that can help me with anything in, in, in Japan, you know, it's going to be Hitoshi. Um, and some other folks as well. Uh, Phil, of course, has been a friend and a mentor and, you know, has been, continues to be my boss. He's on the, he's on the board now, so uh, I, can, I can never escape that. Um, he likes to say that he's the final boss. Uh, so I, I feel it's probably true. He's probably the final boss. Uh, but yeah. um, and so, and that is an invaluable relationship because uh, any type of advice, right? Um, you know, I can I can reach out to, to him and to mm -hmm. the other folks. Um, other people that I've worked with who have now started companies or have good connections, you know, it's great to just reach out to somebody. You know, it's been now six, seven years since I left Evernote to reach out to somebody. And it really is like you didn't skip a beat. You remember each other so well. You trust each other. You know, any type of advice you might ask. Right. So I think building a network, maintaining a network, right? It's also your reputation in network, right? So I did a lot of partnerships. I did a lot of business development at Evernote. I can go to any one of those partners and they know they can work with me. They know they can trust me, right? And, yeah. But if you maybe weren't as good or weren't as um, ethical, you know, that network is going gonna, is gonna to backfire on you. So I think that's, your, that's sort of your life's work, right? You, you build out, you know, the, the folks that you would want to work with in the future, to stay close with in the future with their friends mm -hmm. or coworkers, and that will help you uh, in everything. In that regard, I think it's a quote from Naval Ravikant that comes to mind. He basically said, everything compounds also personal relationships. And in that regard, that seems to be exactly what's happening here. Is that a fair analogy to take? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you also raised a total of 15 million uh, in, from funds uh, over two rounds, I think, in total. So what makes um, investors particularly interested and excited about Sunflower Labs? That's sort of the opposite of the right question, right? The question is like, <laughs> why is it that some of the people I pitched did not invest, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's uh, my experience is that 
um, the more progress we've made in the company, the harder it has been to raise more money because I think people love the crazy idea more than they love the reality of how much more work there is left to do before this becomes a, a profitable sort of like enterprise. And so we were somewhat easier for us to raise money earlier on. I mean, our seed round ended up being a little over $6 million altogether. Um, uh, and our A round, which we closed sometime last year, ended up being about $9 million, but that took just an order of magnitude more work to do, right? Um, and then you would think it's 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 the opposite, right? It's like that our seed round we had nothing. We had a prototype, you know, a pitch deck. Uh, and our A round we had a working system and track record and interested customers and pre-orders and a bunch of other stuff, right? But I think then it came down to like much more uh, practical sort of concerns and considerations. And then it was it just became tougher and tougher. So the people who invested into the company. I'd like to I'd like to believe that they invested because they trust us, they trust the team, mm -hmm. uh, they see the potential for this product, um, they see the potential that we as a team can deliver this product, right? They can they've seen us through the past you know six years, or at the time you know whatever years it was, uh, and that you know this is sort of where it's going to be. The investors that I hope to reach in the future, I think, would be much more. They will see the track record, right? They will see mm -hmm. the, the sales, the production, the you know certifications that we received, uh, customer testimonials, and so forth. So I think you go, you switch from selling a vision to detailing your successes in the past, right, in order to to convince the future future investors. So that's kind of where we are right now, right? And this is quite mind-boggling to to understand, right? Because the, the first time you race a round, um, I often think that this is the easiest to race because people are excited. They believe in the vision, as you mentioned. You, had, you haven't built anything yet, but they see the potential. And then later down the road, you have all the problems. You have to change course sometimes. You still deliver, of course. You still execute and show progress, but things change. And you also have much more challenges to communicate is that really a fair assessment to say the first round is probably the easiest to raise? I'd say so, yeah. Okay. In my experience, the first round you raise basically on the founders, on the idea. Yeah. Um, then your subsequent round you raise on some traction, you know, some product, you know, product market fit, things like that. And then all of your subsequent rounds you raise on actual track record of your sales, your projections, sort of your pipelines and things like that. So. so to go back to your question that you wanted to ask, why did some investors that you pitched the case to not invest, what was their feedback? Oh God, was, I've heard every excuse in the, in the world. <laughs> um, I even had like, at one point I had like a wor word cloud of excuses. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, what were the top words that you saw there over and over again? Too early. This is, this is, and I, and I find that this is the worst one, right? It's like, oh, it's too early for us. And it's like, so you believe that we'll be successful, but it's too early, meaning that you would rather invest later. <laughs> like, I don't quite understand the logic there. So, uh, but I understand if it's too early, like as a, you know, okay, we invest, you know, when you IPO, okay, fine. But, you know, I'm not talking to those investors. I'm yeah, talking to people who do, who do early stage rounds. So like too early is always, a, it, it's a weaselly one. You know, I don't really like that one. Um, uh, what are some of the other ones? Well, okay. So some legitimate ones. Um, uh, sort of like regulatory concerns, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we would like this to be approved by FAA. Would it be so? Sure. And then those are like those you can sort of wave your arms around and say, "Look, it's possible." Some of the companies have gotten this and that, but the truth with drones and regulations is that it's kind of a moving target. It has not solidified at all. As a matter of fact, like uh, the U U.S. regulations, European regulations, and Swiss regulations are all slightly offset from one another. They're all slightly different in different ways. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's not like, that's not a good place to be, right? If you're building products at scale, but they are converging. It's just taking its time. So, okay, fine. I can understand how people say you can build an amazing product. Uh, you've built an amazing product. We love it. But can you really deploy a thousand of them? You know, you know, you could do it as, uh, proof of concept project, you do evaluation project, which is essentially what we've done, mm -hmm. you know, to date, but can you deploy it at scale? And so we're only like, we literally just recently got some of the, some of the FOCA authorizations and EASA authorizations that we've been seeking for. And there's been a lot of work to get them. And now we can like breathe a little bit of relief and say, okay, like, 
we have a product, we have a technology, we have our manufacturing lining up, yeah. and we have the regulations clearing our way so that it's finally sort of like getting aligned, you know, so you can then go go big right after that. Mm -hmm. But okay, so that's a legitimate concern. Um, the, you know, uh, like product market fit, there are certainly uh, funds that will look for you to have traction in a particular mm -hmm. industry. They understand how to scale that. Um, you know, that's a, that's a legitimate concern. Um, concerns that people have that you're building hardware. So uh, Silicon Valley investors, don't really like hardware. B2B software or crypto, although crypto is probably dead now, but, um, but you know, B2B, B2B has always been sort of the sweet spot. You know, they can understand how to scale it, how to grow it, how to measure it. So like, there's a lot of folks that do investment to that. Hardware, I mean, I think there's probably like 20 funds, which I could name out of 500, right? Mm -hmm. Which like specifically do hardware, right? Some of them accidentally do hardware a little bit, but like ones would specifically do hardware. They're not that many, they're, they're harder to get to. Um, and then I'll say uh, one other thing. Uh, when we went to raise money, um, one of the things that happened is a whole bunch of like drone companies essentially folded right before that, like relatively big ones as well, like 3DR, right? So 3DR was like the darling of the, sort of the drone space, like DJI was the biggest one, but 3DR was kind of up and coming. Mm -hmm. And we were raising money one of the rounds and it was like right on the tail of 3DR, just essentially like imploding and after raising $99 million. Uh, Lily was another one, right? That they raised, I don't forget how much, but they like raised a ton of money and they also... And so we were like out there raising money being like, no, 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 like that's not, you know, not all, not everybody's like that, but you get, you talk to these investors and they just lost of course. this and they're like, yeah, I'm not touching this anymore. So we, we went into this hype cycle we, and then we went sort of quickly out of that into the trove of disillusionment. And now I think we're actually are slowly, slowly coming back out where you can see very specific, very vertical use cases for not just drones, but kind of robotics in general. And now you can see that they're really being applied. You can see how they're really sort of, you know, penetrating the market. And I think we're sort of back in a, in a good place in the market with, with drones and with robotics in general. Yeah, certainly an exciting future ahead. I hope so. <laughs> so you also mentioned when we talked about the ideas that you were evaluating, one of them, you know, getting rid or taking care of space garbage. Now you're working on drones and disrupting the security environment for larger properties. What will the future bring for you? What will you focus on between these two ideas where you will eventually get to the, the space garbage one day, maybe? I want to do progressively more complicated things. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have done in my early days, you know, I did web development, and then I actually had a hosting company, kind of like cloud infrastructure company before cloud was really a thing, like we we're sort of providing cloud services, doing some custom development integration. Then I joined Evernote. Evernote was a lot of things. Evernote was, um, you know, obviously software, like you know, desktop software, mobile software, backend software, synchronization algorithms, technology to recognize and process images, you know, uh, integrations with third parties where a massive um, API and, and the kind of a whole app store of, of products. We did hardware integrations. We built a scanner. So that's actually one of my projects as well. So the, we built a scanner with Fujitsu, with Evernote deeply integrated. I still have one. I still use it. I still think it's the greatest scanner ever. And, um, you know, fine, I'm biased, but, but it is, it is. It's the greatest scanner. <laughs> It's never been on like that. We built a few other pieces of hardware. Uh, we even did a little bit of furniture. So, so there was a time at Evernote where we had this kind of a marketplace of stuff, and there was even like desktop furniture to organize it. We did a partnership with 3M, the post the guys that make post-its, in order to automatically recognize when you took a picture of the post-it, extract text from it, make it a note, make it look like a nice kind of recreation of a post-it. I was super proud of that project. So we did all of this stuff that really kind of broadly touches, you know, a lot of your life. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to go, uh, you know, I, when I started this project, I felt that, you know, this was kind of stepping it up even more, right? I've always been fascinated with robotics. I've always wanted to do something in that space. I, I, I was a fan of drones, but I wasn't kind of, kind of an expert in drones. And I thought, you know, it really does feel like there is, there is a lot that this product, this technology, right, can offer. Like DJI did everybody a huge favor, right? DJI essentially showed that drones are uh, reliable, that drones are safe, that drones are relatively inexpensive, they're quite flexible to do. And, you know, they built, they built good hardware products, but I think 
there's so much more of experience you can build around it, right? I almost compare it to like, there were cell phones before the iPhone, right? And so that's like kind of the DJI product is like sort of like a Nokia, you know, in my mind. But then like, you can take that same technology and just build a much better experience out of it, right? And software. And that's what I think a lot of companies doing in Switzerland, a lot of companies are doing around the world, uh, kind of building again on top of that, on top of that existing knowledge and understanding of what of what drones and quadcopters specifically can do. Um, so yeah, so I will do something more complex. I hope to do something with space. That's always been the goal. I mean, I did study astrophysics. So I might as well use it. <laughs> um, you know, the space garbage collection is a cool idea. Although there's been three companies since then that launched um, uh, with a similar mission. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them by Steve Wozniak of all people. So Steve Wozniak has a company that does space garbage collection. So he is now the space garbage man. Uh, so I'll come up with something else. It's okay. I have other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Where does that idea come from or that hunger even to really always go for something more complex, for something more difficult, for something harder? Is that just ingrained in your nature, in your DNA? Well, it's like if you play a game, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not playing the same level over and over, right? right? You, you want to level up. You want to play the next level. So um, yeah, I want to play the next level. I'm not, I'm not sure what the next level is at this point. But um it does feel like something in space is definitely, maybe that's not like the next level, but like eight levels from now. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, where does it come from? I don't know. I think, um, I don't know. It's a form of masochism, I guess, you know. <laughs> I see. Alex, to wrap up today's conversation, we have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. So I either give you different options to choose from or a single question you have to answer in one sentence. In one sentence. Okay. Or try. Okay. You ready? Yeah. First one, do you have a drone surveying your home? I did. I, I sold it. That's a short That's answer. That's fair. I will have one again soon. Okay. <laughs> Switzerland or the United States? For what? For skiing? Switzerland. <laughs> For business? United States. Yeah, fair point. When was the last time that you changed your mind on something important? All the time. All the time? All the time. Like... All the time, yeah. I, I, I am not as stubborn as... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not stubborn, I don't think. Right. Yeah. Product or sales? My passion is more product, but now I am essentially sales. So, like, right. I had to shift my mindset from, from product to sales uh, this year. How do you personally keep the balance between everything that is going on all the time as a founder? I don't know that I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try my best. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a good answer to that. That's fair. In one sentence, how did Evernote prepare you for Sunflower Labs? In every possible way. It's, yeah. I, I couldn't possibly enumerate it. I, I, I tell stories about stuff I learned at Evernote you know, all the time. Yeah. And the last one, what's your favorite part, what that enjoy the most of building a business? Uh, the people I work with. The people I work with, I would build a different business with. I will do something else. I will go to space with. Like it just feels like, like having a, a team you can you can trust, a team you can rely on. Um, you know, you can you can just walk through walls. Alex, I think that's the wonderful sentence to end the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All the best and lots of success. Thank you so much as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>